right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Not Funny Guys Present Why, exploring the philosophy, rhetoric, and culture of the impact in the MCU. I am your host, Dr. John. I'm joined here by my best friend, well, one of my best friends, Eric. Say hi. Howdy, howdy. Howdy, howdy. Hi, Eric. (laughs) (laughs) We are here to explore and discuss different aspects and ideas floating around the MCU as we go through... uh, through our other podcasts and we go deep into the films and this podcast will stick around and sort of get into some vigorous debate about some ideas tracking in some of the elements and aspects of those films by starting with the question why and this is episode two where i have titled it tony stark reads ayn rand and thor acts out shakespeare so for comic book origins this time we do have a new character in thor and from the iron man franchise i am introducing us to the background for war machine since i did name our other podcast war machine cometh as part of its title um we have our roadie or as his full name states james rupert roadie Rhodes. um he originally hit the comic scene in 1979 he's created by david micheline and john byrne uh he first appeared in iron man number 118 uh, the War Machine armor, or the Model 11, did not actually appear until Iron Man number 281 in 1992. Uh, and between that time when he first appeared and that time, he basically acted as a supporting character. And at one point in 1983, he took on Iron Man mantle himself when Tony Stark was drinking too much. Uh, devil in the bottle kind of thing. And apparently kind of saw, to... I mean, a very micro version of that. Yeah. We, we looked at an image of that in the other pod. Uh, but yeah, he basically drunk himself into being unable to function. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course he also did this later in 1992 when apparently Tony faked his death in the comic books as well. Uh, he took up the mantle then. And of course, um, and remember this is the idea that Iron Man is supposed to be a separate person. So we're maintaining that illusion. Uh, and then, of course, eventually he took on the Iron, uh, the War Machine mantle, and eventually would join the the West Coast Avengers team for a while. Oh, of he joined the Thor, West Coast Avengers. Yes, Iron Man. There was a title. Rhodey did, or Coast or Tony Stark did. No, they, they was uh, West Coast Avengers was basically formed uh, as a, like a like an annex version for the Avengers. <laughs> They're <laughs> in New York. There's the West Coast Avengers operating on the West Coast kind of thing. Yeah, uh, Iron Man has <laughs> a hand in both of those. Okay. Um. So, uh, and, and sadly, uh, I used to really enjoy the West Coast Avengers. So, a small tangent here. I used to have a lot of fun. That was one of my favorite comic books, just because it was kind of like a, a stranger, more almost like a Beast Squad, but like Wonder Man was a prominent person in that group, and there were other characters as well. It's kind of like the Hollywood scene. So, um, yeah. our other character we discussed on this week's pod, we, we came across the first Thor movie. And Thor, the character and Marvel character, was created by Stan Lee, uh, his brother Larry Lieber, and Jack Kirby. And he first appeared in Journey into Mystery, number 83, in 1962. And as I hinted on our other pod, his arrival to Earth is very closely mirrored to the movie. Um, he was sent there by Odin at, to learn humility. Uh, he also was initially sent into the body of another person, one medical student named Donald Blake. He then remained dormant in Donald Blake until such time as he was already a doctor. Um, and when he then was attacked by aliens in Norway, he discovered Mjolnir uh, <laughs> uh, disguised as a walking stick. And when he struck the ground with it, he was emerged as Thor. So okay. that's our comic book piece there. Now, um, in the MCU, of course, we we noted that Don Cheadle is now has replaced Terrence Howard playing him. 
And I'm like here, said, it's me. Get over it. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I I think one of the things I find so interesting about the way that the the character of uh, Rhodey plays out in the the movies is that there's a lot of sort of tension between whether or not he's Iron Man's equal or he's a sidekick kind of thing that they have that sort of plays out a little bit in Iron Man too about whether we're in a sense Rhodey is trying to emerge as the responsible person in the suit where Tony is obviously not in hmm. a way. So there is that going on. Um, and of course we, and of course that is also the war machine appearance is a fulfillment of the tease we got in Iron Man one. Um, and then of course we have Thor played by Chris Hemsworth. Um, and like I said, he sort of very does a very good job of mirroring the early Thor stories, very over the top bombastic, um, a lot of flair for the, you know, the old English kind of like thou hast, you know, <laughs> very Shakespearean, you know, in a sense, right. you know, with a sort of modern take. And I think they did a wonderful job in the movie of blending that. And of course, um, his brother Loki, as we are setting up for in the MCU, actually will be responsible for the Avengers first coming together as he did in the comic books. Avengers number one, the Avengers were originally formed to fight Loki. So, And technically, here we go again. Yes, exactly. We're mirroring that to the game. Now, as for our topic of discussion, is before we get to the topics, I want to talk two elements that I noticed in the films. The first mm -hmm. element that has been sort of pondering in my mind for a while in the Iron Man franchise is an idea that Iron Man, especially, and it's very prominent in Iron Man 2, is mimicking or projecting a lot of what we would sometimes see as a kind of libertarian attitude, very anti-government. And there is a particular view of this held that's called objectivism. This is a philosophy of rational individualism founded by Ayn Rand, mm -hmm. um, 1905 to 1982. Um, it holds that there is no greater moral goal than achieving one's happiness. So it's basically indicating a sense of selfishness is good. Right. Very much. Strangely enough, I feel like it's a really strong epitome it had was in the 80s. Um yeah, I mean, I think we may have found a similar quote on this about Ayn Rand because, like, there's there's a quote that I found that I think speaks to it. Well, I don't want to jump ahead, but I'll, I'll read that quote when we do. Okay. Uh, may, yeah, yeah. Maybe get ahead, but I I think I know where you're discussion. going with the question. Yeah, yeah exactly. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. No, that's fine. Uh, but one, to, of course, one cannot achieve happiness by wish mm -hmm. or whim. It requires a rational respect for the facts and reality, including facts. Blah 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 blah. Very right, much quote. a pro-capitalistic <laughs> view, laissez-faire. Yeah, it's mostly considered to be benevolent i would question that but it like basically not to be too forward here but if you want to think about the titan recently and the tragedy around that shoe the government regulations blah 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 that's a dark side of this kind of ide ideology and the the dark side of what happens when you do things like this and i'm going to just honestly go out a branch and i have never found an ayn rand character in her books to be appealing in any way they are a-holes <laughs> pure and simple and i actually yes. think tony stark is actually a pushback in different ways when it comes to his development as a character because but the tony stark we meet in particularly iron man one and also here in iron man two plays the field by operating in a kind of self-centered selfish manner granted he is kind of motivated by his own uh, uh you know um, emerging death perhaps but he's always operated as kind of a lone wolf does his own thing, doesn't really mm -hmm. care, seem to care too much what others think. But when you kind of push the shove on that, he does, actually. But, of course, subjectivism really does center on this idea of uh, 
self-interest to achieve things, and we don't let moochers, society, the government try to weigh us, weigh us down. Right. Now, the other key element I want to bring up, and this will come up in our second discussion question, but let's actually, let's let's change it up a little bit. Let's talk about this some more before we move on to the next theme. Let's go ahead and look at our first discussion question. I think that would be, no, I'm going to no, call an audible here. Let's go okay. ahead and, while we're on it. Omaha! Yeah, <laughs> Omaha, Omaha. All right. So, is Tony Stark, as he is presented in Iron Man 1 and 2, would we consider him to be an objectivist or libertarian hero at this point? So in that sense, right, is he an Ayn Rand archetype, right, yeah. in, in that sort of way? So so this uh, – now I'm going to read my quote that I, oh, I was yeah. saving. All right. Because this, I think, kind of sums up – it actually is her philosophy in her own words. She used mm-hmm. to lecture at campuses, you know, radio, television stuff, so like you were saying. Um, and so her, her philosophy on life – I mean, this is probably a rough quote or not a rough quote, but rather a condensed quote from her um, – the concept, right, of man as a heroic being, right, with his own happiness as the moral person purpose of his life with productive achievement as his noblest activity and reason as his only absolute. And I think that there's an important thing missing from there that is not missing from Tony Stark, which ultimately prevents him from being the Ayn Rand archetype, which is ethics. So it talks about a moral purpose, right? Obviously that's a personal morals and your personal belief, but an ethics applies to the greater good, right? In my opinion, right? When we talk about ethics, generally, I am not ethical because I looked out for myself. I am ethical because I placed myself amongst, right? I placed myself amongst those around me, whatever it may be. And ultimately I said, for the greater good of all of us, myself included perhaps, but still, um, I am not going to start murdering people or I am not going to go commit bank robbery. I'm not going to go do whatever is quote unquote bad. Right. But I think when you look at Ayn Rand and her philosophy, right, it comes down to this simple, completely selfish mentality that we do see from very notable libertarians these days um, or who would consider themselves notable libertarians, at least um, where it is solely driven by their own interests. And I think while Tony definitely is selfish, there is certainly no doubt about that. And he is driven to some extent by his own interest. What he is driven to do is ethically correct. And so at all times, Tony has an ethical underbelly that keeps him from being that kind of Ayn Rand figure, in my opinion, uh, because he is always able to talk himself out of it. Whereas perhaps a Justin Hammer or a Whiplash, you know, Mickey Rourke, maybe even, uh, you know, might have more difficulty with that sort of rationale um, and that ability to say, yeah, I am dying and I'm going to tell you I'm dying or I'm going to tell you I'm struggling in order for you to help me. Right. Because it, with you helping me, I can then help you again. Right. You being the greater you. I think that there's a lot of objectivists and Ayn Randian fans who do like a lot of Tony Stark because they do project onto him. A well, lot he's of super what they see is the representation of their values. And you're right, he does care a lot. But I think one of my favorite things about the evolution of Tony Stark's character in particularly the Marvel Universe is he moves ever so further away from it. Agreed. As yeah. I mean, like, for one, I think a great example actually comes in the Avengers when Captain America, who is kind of like his polar opposite, tells him, you're not the guy to throw yourself on the grenade. And what does he do at the end of that movie? He literally tr- guides a nuclear weapon into a black hole portal basically to save people that's not within the self-interest notion and of course by the time we get to end game which we will get to in our own time on the other podcast what does he do but he's the one who literally does throw himself on the grenade right you know so right. i think it's strange to see his journey 
And a lot of what objectivism was pushing back against that it's in its own time is it's not a fan of altruism, of collectivism and things mm. of that nature. Um, and that's not to say that that all collectivism or altruism is good. I think what you have to always consider with the philosophies, whether it be an objectivist point of view, individualism or collectivism, you have to always consider that there's a there's a balancing act that has to happen. You can't simply embrace one extreme and think that's the way that you have to do things. I think like most things, there is a need for sort of a a middle ground at all times, like a balance between the things. I mean, I think it's fine. Like, I wouldn't say we need to be a collectivist society and we need to. I mean, that's what we lived in in the Middle Ages, in a sense. Right. But I think we need to keep in mind that there is just as much value in an individual per point of view at a certain place in a certain time as there is in a collectivist notion at another place in another time. You know, yes, it's the complexity yeah. of human life. We have to will. And I think what I like about Iron Man's journey, and we're starting to see this now, is his I feel like his journey throughout the entire his entire point place in the MCU, particularly the movie universe, has been kind of a, a conflictive journey of one person going from what would be an ultra objectivist kind of sense of the world. You know, flip the middle bird. I don't care what your problems are. I'm doing it my way. And I mean, literally, he was selling the road against um, his own objectivism when he came back from, you know, building the armor the first time and said, no more, more manufacturing. I mean, right. that alone right there already kind of began to set him on a path away from this thing. And he just continues. I mean, he goes as far as to go even too far with, say, the Ultron, mm -hmm. which we will get to. Maybe it's him even going too far the other way. He's like having to find that middle ground by going to such extremes. And of course, that kind of fits in with his personality of his character. Sure. Yeah, he's he's constantly trying to find the correct balance. And I would say struggling, right? From from that ethical standpoint of how yeah, how how much does he save and how much does he become proactive, right? How much does he minority report everything? Yeah. Um but I, I think also to that point, you know, he started very much as you know the the Ayn Rand figure but then you kind of spoke to something in that that sort of need for us all to have that balance and I think that that's where perhaps the libertarian and the Ayn Rand archetype does come into play with with Tony I mean he talks about the fact that he privatized security yeah. or or national security or, or privatized global, peace yeah, yeah that's peace, the line. Yeah, I, I that. noted that because I'm like yeah. that right there <laughs> <laughs> and some of that's just narcissism right at a certain point but also like there is a certain element where and to the point of what i think a lot of maybe more classical republicans and and died in the wool republicans if you will uh, from a financial standpoint would say is that the ayn rand idea of capitalism that goes back to that sort of her philosophy i said and that pursuit through noblest activity and, and things like that productive achievement right that is ultimately capitalism and that is the balance that creates between two one side or the other right and so that Tony is very much a capitalist and that is on full display in this movie. And I, I don't know that that ever goes away, um, but I, it does temper, I guess, to some extent, but I, you know, so, so to that extent, he does kind of play into that role. Right. Yeah. And I, I'll include a link to this in our show notes, but there's a great uh, video essay from screen crush where they talk about the failure of the Snyder verse, which is our DC dead counterpart at this point <laughs> um and the mcu and it notes beyond the characters 
that the driving force for Zack Snyder is highly within the vein of objectivist Ayn Randian thought and the way he applies it to superheroes kind of doesn't work versus the more collectivist attitude inside the MCU that ends up where we are now with such a successful franchise. The fascinating thing, I'll include the link. We don't have to talk about it, but it is a fascinating video um, to watch. It's about 45 minutes. Or, no, it's about 35 minutes. I'm sorry. It's a good video essay, good breakdown, fascinating stuff. Something if you if you folks, if you're more interested in some of the things we're talking about here, you can see it applied in a much more broad spectrum beyond Iron Man. But I've always been fascinated by the way Iron Man fits into this ideal. And another subplot character who appeared in Iron Man 2, Elon Musk, kind of has his own place in some of this uh, stuff as well. In fact, he sometimes, I think, thinks he is a real Iron Man. I'm like, dude, it's a fictional character. I love comic books, and even I get it. Come on. Calm it down. <laughs> You're not that or he, he, he envisions okay. himself the, uh, the protagonist of an Ayn Rand novel. Oh, I know. He does. I think he absolutely mm -hmm. does. So do we have any uh, final thoughts or anything fun thinking we want to talk about with the objectivism? I know we're going to come back to this at some point. So, yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I like your, your note about the, the kind of growth of Tony. I mean, I, I think I've said it maybe on the pod, if not at least to you guys that um, Tony is one of the best arcs in, in cinematic history. Thanks in part to how much we get to see of him throughout it all, but also how much of those 10 years really kind of center on him as some yeah. sort of linchpin to the rest of the action. Um, and so therefore it requires him to grow. And I think that, I think that it's interesting to see him as this sort of libertarian figure. Cause it's, it, it is there, I think in one and two, and it definitely starts to shift after that, but we see the cracks forming, uh, from, from the, the, the cave and on basically. Well, yeah, I mean like his, in his interactions with Captain America and Avengers will be, are very much in a strong vein of a collectivist versus individualist kind of yeah i mean i think that speaks to why he comes out and makes his pub pub you know his his known his identity known right yes and supports the idea of registration later on too yeah they do tie that in well uh good all right great i mean we'll i mean like i said we'll we'll obviously be revisiting this because i think it is mm -hmm. a, it's a topic that has a flowing point that goes along with a lot of tony's arc so let's talk about the another the, the next topic under discussion and i want to talk about the influence of Shakespeare and Shakespearean drama in Thor. Now, we mentioned some of this on the other pod, but I want to lead off here with the idea, of course, because of the director of mm -hmm. this Thor film is Kenneth Branagh, director and actor of such Shakespearean adaptations as Much Do About Nothing, Henry V, and Hamlet. And I think there's a lot of interesting things that are in common with Shakespearean themes that work in and that are accentuated in Thor, the film. There is the brother versus brother vying for a father's love like the children in King Lear, except this time it's Odin. Mm -hmm. um, we have the hubris it almost destroys, that almost destroys it all. Uh, the mortals and the gods interacting like something out of Midsummer's Night Dream or The Tempest. And then I thought what was really fascinating to me was that I was very struck by, and maybe because I just watched The Lost King, which has to do with Richard III, I was very struck by how Loki sort of seems to embody kind of a version of Richard III, who was himself a younger brother, or a bit of a Cassius from Julius Caesar as well. He's driven by jealousy of the main protagonist. So what do we think about this? You, you mean, you, Eric, you have you huh. have a theater background, so you've got some, you know, your wife is in theater, you've done theater. Yeah. 
Like I, what... I want to hear some insight, further insight on this because we did touch on this a little bit. But do we see Thor in kind of a quasi Shakespearean form or work at, at going on here? Oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, definitely. I mean, there's you could make the character references to to. I, I would say they shift through a lot of them, right? There's no one play of Shakespeare's that they're necessarily no. They run the spectrum. On. Yeah, but there's very much a. Um, uh, Othello and Iago sort of aspect to to Thor and Loki as well, um, especially I think in that I keep calling it the prologue because to me the movie starts about thirty minutes in, uh, <laughs> and so that first thirty minutes of uh, of Thor where it really kind of shows the backstory of why Thor is sent to Earth basically, which is a whole hubris you know study in itself, um, is very much a Othello and Iago story with with what what once we learn right we don't necessarily realize it at the time because loki is not necessarily you know addressing the audience or soliloquying and, and telling us his plans as as he does in othello but once we kind of look back on it we're like oh yeah he was totally just manipulating him he's doing a bit just, of a richard's a third sometimes there too with the idea of putting on the the happy mm-hmm. face i think richard yeah. the third does something similar about that in the opening of the play yeah i'm not i won't lie i'm not as familiar with richard the third as some of his others, I guess, you know, maybe quote unquote more famous ones. Um, the Richard the Third's pretty famous. Well, um, he, he, I actually have it here. He says, this, "Now is the winter of our discontent. May glorious summer by the sun of York and all the clouds and lowered upon our house, and the deep bosom of the ocean buried. Now mm-hmm. our brows are bound with victorious reefs, our bruised arms hung up for monuments, our stern al- alarums." Change the merry meetings, our dreadful marsage. Grim visage war hath smoothed its wrinkled front. Now instead of mounting, but you know, he's basically lamenting here that this this is all um you know, oh darn, we're not fighting anymore. <laughs> yeah. You know, and then he goes on to say something that I that am curtailed for the fair proportion, cheated of feature by dissembling nature, deformed, unfinished, sent before my time into this breach with scarce half made up and of course he's referencing his deformity and then later on he actually makes this idea that i will put on a pleasant visage for those around me so that they do not suspect me mm-hmm. that you know my appetites and things of that nature he, he's very plotting but of course unlike loki richard tells you <laughs> right out the but gate I mean- what he's up to Almost to that extent, though, when you read that, there, there's a little bit of Odin kind of behind that, too, with some of that braggy. Uh, Bad you know. role model. Yeah. Um, so. Bad dad. Yeah, I, I, I would say in general, the whole tone is very Shakespearean. I think that is partly in part because of Kenneth Branagh and probably why they got Kenneth Branagh at the same time. Um, you know, he is just famous for so many um, uh, Shakespearean adaptations that you know, you have this kind of old English uh, language, you know, in a, in a way being used, especially like you said, from Thor, uh, the and thou, um, and, yeah. and that was and, very prominent in the comic books. Yeah. Language so, was very much like he was speaking, like he was some, like, like something out of a Shakespearean, like Hamlet almost kind of vibe about him. And, and the character is very much a, a max hubris sort of character, which, you know, is, is not uncommon. Um, in a lot of Shakespearean plays as well. I, the one thing I'll say is there's not really much of a tragic hero in this. I mean, one could argue that that Thor is, but there, 
One could also argue that Thor is almost a biblical character in, in the need of, of redemption right, at the same time. Well, but then again, he is a religious figure in some way, right, of, of Norse mythology, at least. And so there's always that sort of element uh, to, to some of your your most noble. Um, it's like we yeah. avoid the tragic ending with that good guy yeah, taste. You right. know? And then almost as strangely at the end, the tragic hero in a really dark way is Loki. Which I think, and I, I don't mean this as as Iago as a tragic hero, but it comes back to Othello and that sort of, I'll never speak again, right? Sort of, you know, thought like, fine, I'm, I'll cast myself off and only I shall know my true intentions, right? In, yeah. In that way. That's good. Yeah, no, I think that, I think that's interesting. And I mean, I think they're, uh, unfortunately, I don't think we're going to return to this as much, but even inside the MCU, there are littered a sense of certain Shakespearean moments. And I think Avengers kind of capture some of the same ideals to a degree, but of course, well, I'm sure it will come up some more. So any uh, last thoughts on the Shakespearean elements inside of Thor? Yeah, I, I would say that we definitely continue to will continue to see a Shakespearean element to Asgard, and maybe that's the better way to say it because I do feel like a there's point. a purposeful effort to break and make fun of the Shakespearean you know sort of way and make it almost camp once he lands on Earth and everyone else is like, dude, what the fuck is with the thee and thous, right? You know, basically. So, so yeah. that there is there is a conscious effort, and by the time we get to Taika Watiti, it's out the window, right? Yeah. Um, no matter where you are at that point, but you know, I think there's that a point conscious we're embracing element. our Jack Kirby fantasy, right? But I think on. at the same time, it was very good and is very helpful. You know, rewatching again, I I didn't love it as much. You know, if you listen to the pod, you probably heard Casey say it because I was brainwashed or whatever by the media, but um, <laughs> I, I I wasn't. I wasn't as as unhappy with it as I remember being. And I think some of that becomes back to the fact that I've grown a little bit more ready for, for the origin story again, in a way, to, to be able to rewatch it. It's kind of nice. And it makes complete sense that the origin story of Thor, to really bring him to life from the comic book, because as you say, this was not uncommon speak and stuff like that for, for his style in the comics. So it makes perfect sense to try to make it the Shakespearean epic, you know, slash fantasy adventure you know, have your most Shakespearean of, of directors come in to do it um, yeah. and, and just lay it on thick, but then make sure that you recognize the the silliness of it as you progress into the, the true MCU from there. I think I agree. I completely agree with you on that one. I think that's excellent. I think, I mean, if I was going to say, okay, I'm a Shakespearean director. I want to do a character who I'm Thor. Yep. Mm -hmm. That's my guy. I'll do that. Can I do that yeah. one? Yeah. Let me do that one. And yeah, I do I, think I, it's a great way of introducing the character. And then I think once you've done that, you don't have to keep sticking to the format. You get to evolve. I mean, all every Captain America movie so far has been like a different genre. You know, almost. Yeah. yeah. They've tried all kinds. And I think I've I've really appreciated the fact that we've we've kind of evolved those as well. And I think that's kind of something you need, even within a certain franchise. It's not a bad thing to uh change the pace use the broad appeal of these characters to explore different types of film genre. And I think with Thor, we're really getting a, a taste of what you can do with something like that and break mm -hmm. out of the mold while still in effect, in a way still being exactly inside the mold at the same time. It's very strange. It's, it's almost contradictory the way that plays out, but I love it. So it'd be neat to see them revisit 
and really lay on thick even more than Thor did the the Shakespearean tone to like if they were to ever do a Beta Ray Bill right because I feel like that could lend <laughs> yeah. itself well where they could kind of blend this really thick acceptable Shakespeare ridiculousness because Beta Ray Bill himself is a Midsummer's Night Dream there with that kind exactly of vibe, you, you know? could go that way but you could also like heavy metal it up in a way you know yeah. <laughs> you know so I, I'd like to see them maybe well maybe not Kenneth Branagh I know he can be a, a challenge to work with from what I hear but. Um, but then again, so so can Marvel from what I hear recently. So yeah. who knows? <laughs> so we'll see. Yeah, right, we'll see. Well, great conversation. So that's what we're looking for. So, folks, if you uh, want to add to this conversation and you also would definitely want to hear us talk about the films in more depth. So you definitely want to subscribe, share us with friends, like, comment, tell us how you feel. Check us out on our Email us if you have questions, comments. Mm-hmm. We have notfunnyguys.offthereels at gmail.com. We're on Instagram where you'll start seeing this get promoted along with all the other things. Like I just put up a post today, not only about the new pod coming out, but I also did one about our AI discussion so that we can continue that as well. And I'm sure that AI discussion at some point will probably circle back to this Around pod here. as well. And I'm sure it will continue on the main pod as well. So just feel free Ultron to Ultron feels like, like a it. great moment for that. <laughs> yeah, I know. But uh, I am Dr. John. I'm here uh, with our, my best friend, Eric, and we are signing off. Until next time.